great to see all of you here this morning. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're visiting for the very first time, thank you so much for joining us and choosing to attend Connect here this morning. Uh, you've actually joined us on a fantastic day because we are kicking off a brand new series here this morning. We tend to teach here at Connect in series, so there'll kind of be a bit of progression. Uh, although this particular series will be a great one because uh, each message in the series will kind of be a standalone message based on something that Jesus taught. Uh, but the series is called Upside Down. Now, um, maybe some of you have heard of the show on Netflix. It's called Stranger Things. It's incredibly popular right now with teenagers, younger people. Uh, but it also happens to be popular with people my age. Uh, and I think the reason is, is because it's set in the 80s when times were great, when kids could just get out and ride their bikes for hours on end. They got crazy haircuts, crazy clothes they're wearing. I mean, the 80s was just a great time. But it's just kind of bizarre because I'm hearing teenagers now singing along to Kate Bush and Metallica, and I'm like, hey, that's my music. You're singing my songs here. That's, that's my generation. And I know, I'm sounding like really dad here, old. But um, this concept of this particular show, Stranger Things, is that uh, this, this group of kids are doing battle with this, this villain, and um, there's this, this upside-down world in which the villain lives. And uh, the upside-down world is like this version of their town, but upside-down. So it's like, instead of being bright and cheery, like the place that they live, it's this dark, gloomy, scary place. And they keep referring to it as the upside-down. Well, this morning, as I said, we're kicking off this series called Upside-Down. Because Jesus described a kingdom that he came to establish. And we're going to discover that this kingdom that Jesus describes is upside-down, compared to our current world. But unlike the show Stranger Things, Jesus' upside-down kingdom, I believe, is actually the way things should be. And, and the world in which we live is almost the, the upside-down version. It's we've, we're the ones who have kind of missed it, who are seeking, and, and Jesus is promising us this wonderful kingdom, this upside-down reality that's a reverse of what we experience in our lives. It was a couple of years ago, it was um, spring, I think, of 2020, and uh, I did a couple of messages, just a two-week series where we talked about this idea of upside down. It was right around the beginning of COVID, we were all in lockdown, and the world just seems to be upside down. I'm sure you remember it well. So over those two weeks, I, I chose to talk about uh, a period of time in Israel's history when we went through this incredibly traumatic experience. After hundreds of years of living as a community there, um, they were attacked by the Babylonians. Their city was destroyed. They were taken captive, taken away from their, their home place, and they were now living in captivity in Babylon. It was an incredibly traumatic time for them. Their lives were flipped upside down, and they thought that the world as they knew it was over. But the great thing is, as you read through some of these passages in the Old Testament at this time, God was still at work. He was still speaking to Israel through the prophets. And he sent a message to say, even though your city has been destroyed, even though you're in captivity, I am still in charge. I am still in control. There will come a time when you will return. A new kingdom is coming. And this filled them with hope and anticipation and excitement of this new kingdom that would one day come. And even when they found themselves going back to the place that was once their home, 
rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the city. They still knew that this was just kind of a temporary fix, that there was a new kingdom coming, that one day God would come and reign in this kingdom. There was a sense of excitement about this new kingdom and this new king. They started talking about someone called a Messiah, a Messiah who would come. So for about 600 years, there was this anticipation of this Messiah, this king one day returning. So when Jesus came along, hundreds of years after this, a couple of thousand years ago, when Jesus comes along and he starts talking about things like the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, you can imagine how people in Jesus' time felt hearing these phrases. Because there had been a sense of anticipation of this king coming, this, this Messiah. I came across this quote this week from a, a very famous Jewish scholar, Rabbi Hillel Silver. He lived in the early 1900s. And uh, listen to what he said about this idea of the anticipation of the king coming. Prior to the first century, the messianic interest was not really excessive. The first century, however, especially the generation before the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 AD, witnessed a remarkable outburst of messianic emotionalism. This is to be attributed, as we shall see, not to an intensification of Roman persecution, but to the prevalent belief induced by the popular chronology of that day that the age was on the threshold of the millennium. It seems likely, therefore, that in the minds of the people, the millennium was to begin around the year 30 CE or 30 AD. The Messiah in that time was expected around the second quarter of the first century. And if you know history, you'll know that Jesus lived in those first 30 years. In fact, his ministry began probably sometime around 30 AD. So imagine what the world must have been like at that time with this heightened expectation. I'll give you an example. It was only seven years ago, seven years ago, pre-2016, that we would use phrases like, well, tidy his room, get a raise, go out on a date with me. There's more chance of the Cubs winning the World Series. That was like a phrase one would use. You know, it's like synonymous with pigs might fly because we lived in a world where there was really no expectation of the Cubs ever winning the World Series. I mean, there was a lot of hope and a lot of belief and a lot of desire, but the reality was we lived in a world pre-2016 where while there was an expectation, most of us were like, but pigs may fly before that. <laughs> and then suddenly... During the baseball season, and you could tell I've looked this up because I don't really know much about baseball, there was this sense of heightened expectation and excitement throughout that season. People were talking, hey, the Cubs look pretty good this year. This could be the year. Now, many people for many years have said, hey, this could be the year. But this really seems different. This seemed like it could have been the year. Expectation began to rise. Curses were being broken. <laughs> An atmosphere was developing in Chicagoland and, and down here amongst half of the people who live in central Illinois who don't support the Cardinals, the other half who support the Cubs. There was this expectation, and, and as the World Series against the Indians got underway in October, there was this heightened sense of expectation. 
people were like, no, seriously, this really could be it. They've got a great team. And, and people were tuning in and watching the games. And man, they made it exciting. Seven games it took, but seven exciting games later, the Cubs were the new World Series champions. And many of you, especially you Cubs fans out there, you, you remember what that was like. You remember the excitement and the anticipation. Well, well this, this rabbi, he's saying that was what it was like uh, about 30 AD, 30 years uh, into the new millennium where, where the calendar was creating this sense of excitement and anticipation that, hey, the kingdom may be coming. This Messiah that's been promised for hundreds of years, this could be the time. And in the midst of this excitement and expectation, Along comes the most unlikely of people, a carpenter from Nazareth. But he was no ordinary carpenter. He was capturing people's attention. He was drawing crowds of people. In the New Testament, we have four accounts of the life of Jesus. They're written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This particular series, we're gonna be looking at um, some of the teaching from Matthew himself. And Matthew was brilliant. And uh, whenever he wrote down the, the life of Jesus, he really wrote to a, to a Jewish audience. So he understood what it was like for the people of Israel who, who all this time had been expecting this Messiah to come, had been had hear, hearing stories of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and this new kingdom. So Matthew describes what life was like in Jesus' time. And, and listen to what he says in Matthew chapter four verses 23 through 25. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria. And people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the 10 towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, from the east of the Jordan River. This guy was having a huge impact in the world in which he lived. In the midst of this expectation amongst the people of a, of a Messiah, of a, of a new kingdom, of God sending the king that he'd been promising for so long, along comes this man who performs these incredible miracles. But even if that's all he had done, I think that would have been incredible. That would have been inspiring. That would have been an amazing thing to see. But it wasn't just that. He teaches about the kingdom. And listen to the way Matthew describes the impact of his teaching. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, it says, When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. Now, this particular uh, comment that Matthew is making about the crowds being amazed at the teaching of Jesus, of Jesus <laughs> uh, teaching of Jesus, uh, it came right at the end of um, a three-chapter portion in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, where Jesus has spent a long time teaching. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and he taught all these different things right there on this mountainside, and the crowds were amazed at what he was teaching. And over the next eight weeks in our series, Upside Down, we're actually going to look at eight specific things that Jesus talked about as he started the Sermon on the Mount, the very beginning, the very opening of this sermon. They were known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. 
the, the Webster definition of this word, because it's not a word we use often today. We may have heard it before. We don't really understand what it means. Webster's definition of this word is a state of utmost bliss. A state of utmost bliss. Maybe it would help you to hear it used in a sentence. Um, Casey said being married to Dave was a beatitude, a state of utmost bliss. <laughs> huh? No? Okay. Maybe we'll try and find another sentence for second service. This noun, beatitude, it refers to a state of great joy, of happiness, of, of being blessed. Sometimes you've heard it taught where Jesus says, blessed are the, um, what, is, what was it like to feel blessed? So Jesus starts out this incredibly famous teaching on that hillside that day with eight ideas of what it looks like to be happy or blessed. But what we're gonna find out over the next eight weeks is that it's completely upside down. When Jesus talks about what it means to be happy or to bless, it's completely upside down from what the people of his day imagined happiness would look like. Maybe even for what we today would imagine that happiness looks like. You see, if we think about it, we all have our own idea, don't we? Even before we get into this teaching this morning, we all have our own idea of what it means to be happy. I bet I could walk around the room with a microphone this morning and get as many different answers as there are people in this room. But maybe some of them will be things like, if I only owned, you can fill in the blank right there, if I had one of these, if I owned one of these, then I'd be happy. If I only lived in that house or that neighborhood or that state, then I'd be happy. If only I could marry that guy, I'd be happy. If only I hadn't married that guy, I'd be happy. <laughs> There's all sorts of things that we might say that, that would give us an idea of, of what happiness is. But as we think about this subject, it's interesting to see what Jesus says happiness is. And I think it's gonna be good for us this morning, very timely for us to think through because as I was preparing for this message, I discovered that in June of 2020, uh, the newspapers, the, the news media was reporting the findings of a poll that had just come out that Americans were the unhappiest they'd been in 50 years. This was June of 2020. Now, we can kind of understand why that poll may have given those findings. It was right after the pandemic had just begun. People were in lockdown. You know, it just was a kind of a scary, difficult time. I'd like to say that over the last two years, things have changed and we're all a lot happier now. <laughs> But actually, there's a lot that's kind of um, added to the fact that I think a lot of us are looking for what it means to be happy. Where can we find happiness in this bleak situation? So Jesus teaches what it will look like to find happiness in this new kingdom. And we're gonna look at that first one this morning. There's eight of them all together. We're gonna start out with the first one this morning. Matthew chapter five begins this sermon on this mountainside and he starts out with these beatitudes, these, these ideas of what it looks like to be happy or to be blessed. It starts out by saying in verse one, one day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up to the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. Now, that's, quite, that's actually quite important language that Matthew is using there because he explains that Jesus moves away from the crowds. He goes up onto the mountainside and he sits down. 
You see, he's describing here again to his Jewish audience who would understand what it was like for there to be a rabbi or a teacher, which is what Jesus was, and the way in which he would teach his disciples. There would be times where Jesus might be walking along the road and you know, he may pick a piece of corn and he would use that as an example to just teach his disciples as he was walking along. So he was always looking for ways as a good rabbi to teach and to help people understand things of what it was to uh, understand the things of God. But sometimes, when a rabbi wants to make sure that people fully understood the importance of what he was about to say, the rabbi would sit down. When the rabbi sat down, it meant, okay, gather round. There's something important I need you to learn. So the rabbi would sit down and the disciples would come and they'd stand around him. I'm kind of bummed that that tradition has changed because right now I'm the one standing and you're all sitting down. Can we reverse this? Maybe I'll, I'll get a chair. You guys can stand and listen. So Jesus sits down. So we know by the fact that Matthew has said that that what he's about to say is really important. And he starts out in verse three. He says, blessed are the... And this is just my imagination, but I like to imagine that maybe as he started to say this, Maybe he just paused at that point, a bit of a dramatic pause, just allowing people in their heads to kind of fill in that blank. Happy, this is what it means to be happy. This is what it means to be blessed. Blessed are the... And in that moment, I wonder what people started to think. I bet they were kind of excited thinking, I wanna know what will make me happy. Where can happiness be found? How, how will I be blessed? Maybe they were wondering that moment as Jesus started to go into this, this idea of what it looked like to be blessed. Maybe they were wondering, what will it take to make it into this new kingdom? Who will be the blessed ones in it? We've, we've heard about this new kingdom for so long and, and some of us sitting here, we don't feel like we belong in this crowd. We don't feel like we're gonna belong in this new kingdom because we don't feel like we belong in this kingdom. The religious leaders and the people of the law, they, they've made it quite clear that we are not one of them. So I wonder what we're gonna have to do. Maybe we can do something to fit in to this new kingdom. Maybe they were worried because they were thinking that the very next words of Jesus will be something like, blessed are the people who were born into the right family. Blessed are the people who do everything right. Blessed are the people who are the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders. Maybe that's what they were expecting Jesus to say. But then he turns the world upside down. Because in verse three, he starts out by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's this anticipation, this expectation of this kingdom of heaven. They've known about it for hundreds of years. The Messiah is gonna bring about this new kingdom. He's gonna lead his people into this kingdom. And, and they've been waiting. And here's Jesus saying, okay, here are the people who belong there. Here are the people who will be happy in this brand new kingdom. And they're waiting with bated breath. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What? Being poor in spirit is where I'll find happiness. I don't know about you, but when I hear that phrase, I just kind of picture Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, just kind of down and, you know, like looking miserable. And so are you saying, Jesus, I gotta be like him to inherit the kingdom of heaven? 
Well, I like the way another version puts it, another translation of the Bible. And, 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 and when I say that, you know, I don't want to assume that every one of you understands. So, so different translations of the Bible, there are people who over history have taken the original manuscripts and have just translated it because our language has changed a lot in 2,000 years. When people read the King James Bible, have you ever read the King James Bible? That's how people spoke. So they read it and it made total sense. 1600s, people today are still reading the King James Bible, struggling with the way it's written because we don't speak that way anymore. So these new translations, they're still based on the original. It's not like we keep watering it down with each translation. They're still based on the original scrolls and, and manuscripts that archeologists have found. But these, these scholars, they take these new translations and they say, okay, this is, this is a more contemporary word. This is an easier way of understanding this phrase. So with that in mind, this, this other translation, it's called the New Living Translation. This is how it translates verse three. God blesses those who are poor and who realize their need for him. They decided this explains that phrase, poor in spirit, a little bit better. That, that God wants to bless those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now this was completely upside down teaching for the people of that day. This would be completely upside down from what the religious leaders of Jesus' day would have been teaching. If you and I had been there that day and had been the average person in the crowd, we would have understood as just regular people, average people, we would have understood what it meant to be poor in spirit. Because the people back then, they were used to being told that, that being on good terms with God was all about being really good at being good. That's what it meant to be on, on the right level with God. It was all about being good. And most of them knew that they didn't measure up. They weren't part of the it crowd, religiously speaking. They weren't the religious superstars. So what does it really mean for us this morning, as it did back then, to be poor in spirit, to realize our need for him? I think the best way of using an analogy, a real life situation to illustrate this is, is reminding you of a story that took place uh, about 12 years ago on the 5th of August, 2010. Some of you might remember this. That was the day that the news headlines around the world were announcing that 33 Chilean miners were trapped underground. You guys remember that? It was about 13 years ago that there was these miners, they'd been working underground and there was a mine collapse and, and one person managed to escape but the other 33 were trapped inside this mine because of the collapse. They were trapped 2,300 feet underground. That's a long way to be trapped under the earth's surface. We followed along in the news stories that for two weeks they were drilling to try and find signs of life, completely unaware that anyone had survived. Just in the hope that maybe if there's even one survivor, we'll try and reach that one person. But every time they drilled, no luck, no luck, no signs of life. On August 19th, this is two weeks after the initial collapse, August 19th, Rescuers um, sent a probe down. They drilled all the way down, 2,300 feet, into an area where they believed the miners were trapped. And still, 
no sign of life. Rather than give up, they decided to keep trying just a little bit longer. And three days later, another probe, another drill, went all the way down through the earth to another area. In this area was the space where the miners were. They'd heard these drills, they'd heard these probes, but every time it would get close and then disappear. But this day, this day trapped in that mine for over two weeks now with no way of communicating with anyone on the surface. Suddenly, imagine what that must have been like to have been in that space and seen this, this drill come through. They say that immediately the miners started hitting the drill with tools and people on the surface could hear the vibrations and the sounds and they knew that there was life beneath the surface. They didn't know if it was one, two, three, four, but what the miners did was they attached a note to the bottom of the drill. So when the drill went back up above the surface, this now famous note said, all 33 of us are fine in the shelter. That's the note there, it's in Spanish, I won't even try. All 33 of us are fine and in the shelter. With renewed hope now, the people above the ground started to work on a plan to get supplies and to get help and eventually to get these miners out of there. It took 69 days altogether from the time the mine collapsed. That's almost three months. But finally, on October the 13th, bear in mind it collapsed on the 5th of August. On October the 13th, the first miner, being watched live by millions of people around the world, made it safely to the surface. I came across a little news video clip of that. It all began shortly after midnight local time as a rescue engineer strapped into the 26-inch wide escape capsule named Phoenix 2 and then began the still unproven man trip below, 2,040 feet down a shaft through some of the hardest rock on earth. 17 minutes, 22 seconds later, first contact. It worked on the way down, and soon, as a billion viewers around the world watched the image like a transmission from the moon, 31-year-old Florenzio Avalos would prove with this first trip to the surface, the capsule worked both ways. At 11 minutes after midnight, as Florenzio was the first to end this 70-day crisis, his son, seven-year-old Byron, touched everyone's hearts. just so much in that story. 17 minutes for that thing to go down to reach the miners. But imagine how they felt when for the very first time they see someone from above the surface. Imagine how the world felt when for the very first time one of those miners emerged alive and well. But imagine for a moment being one of those miners trapped underground. Can you imagine what that must have been like? They knew there wasn't a thing that they could do to save themselves. 2,000 feet below the earth's surface. No hope. There was no way they could dig their way out. No way they could engineer their own rescue. They were utterly dependent on someone outside of themselves to save them. Just feel for a moment that feeling of helplessness. Because that's what it means to be poor in spirit. 
to understand that we are helpless, that there is nothing that we can do, no amount of good things that we can do, that we are trapped in our, what the Bible calls our sin. It separates us from God. Isaiah, he uh, was one of the prophets in the Old Testament. He says, it's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. He's talking to the people of Israel there, but the same is true for us today, that those sins have separated us from God. And like the miners trapped below the surface, our sins have cut us off from God. And there's nothing we can do to rectify this situation. But God knew this. And God refused to leave us trapped in our sin like those miners underground. So he had to work his way down to us. He loved you and me so much that he came up with a plan. He didn't bore 2,300 feet through the earth. He sent his one and only son to this earth to die in our place. And on a regular basis here at Connect, once a month, we, we take communion together. And we're actually gonna do that right now because um, sometimes we'll do this during worship and that's great. But I felt like, man, in this message, this is the point for communion. So if you're new here, uh, there's elements under your chair. And uh, if you feel comfortable taking communion this morning, we'd love to invite you to join us. If not, that's totally fine. You can just sit and um, uh, just allow others to take communion around you. But the reason we take communion here at Connect is to worship God, to thank God, but ultimately, it's to remind us of what he did for us. To remind us that we were trapped. There was nothing we could do. There was no amount of good things, however hard we tried, to get us out of our situation. So he came up with a solution. And it was the most costly solution imaginable because it involves the body and the blood of his son. It involves sacrificing his son. And I just thought, man, with that image of those miners in our minds this morning, what a great time to thank God for his rescue effort. To thank God for what this represents, that he rescued us. As we take communion this morning, I want to imagine, I want you to imagine that you're like that, that first miner that came up above the surface. God, I've been set free. The excitement his family must have felt as he came up above the surface. So uh, the way this works, there's two layers. If you peel the top layer, there's like a little wafer there. That's the bread. And we're going to take this together to represent the body of Jesus. So let's take that now. Lord Jesus, this, this bread, this wafer, it represents your body that was broken for us. It represents the plan that you put into place to rescue us, to, to, to set us free, to, to break the barrier that was there between us and God because of the sin, because of the wrong things that are in our lives. And now if you peel the second layer, we're gonna drink the juice together. Jesus, as we drink this cup together, again, it is to remind us of what you did. And it's with a sense of gratitude this morning. Maybe this morning after watching that video, it's even with a sense of understanding of the hopelessness that we found ourselves in and the massive attempts, the massive uh, thing you are willing to do to come and rescue us, the effort that you gave to rescue us. Thank you, Jesus, so much that you came to rescue us from our sin. We love you so much. 
you know, Jesus is talking about an attitude here, uh, an understanding of where we are. That's, that's what it means to be poor in spirit. That verse said, to be poor and to realize our need for him. And this is why it was so important that Jesus say this at that particular time. It's important for us to hear it now, but it was revolutionary at that time. Because there was an understanding at that time that Jesus was coming to kind of break through. You see, in Jesus' time, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were living like they'd solved the problem. They had a self-righteous attitude. They looked down upon anyone who was not like them. On the outsides, they, they prided themselves on all these rules that they followed. There were so many rules, and, and they worked so hard at following every single one of them. And they made sure that everyone knew how good they were at dotting the I's and crossing the T's when it came to their outward behavior. But Jesus actually at another point in one of the other um, accounts of his life, Jesus would actually one day challenge these Pharisees and religious leaders and say, you know what? Your behavior, you're like whitewashed tombs. And what he meant was, because in that day there would be these above ground tombs that looked beautiful. You know, people would paint them white, you know, and they looked really nice as you walked by. And from the outside, they looked amazing, but they were still tombs. They were the home of death and decay and bones. And he was saying to the Pharisees, that's kind of what you're like. On the outside, you've got it all together and you're very proud of, of how well you're doing and how, how good you're doing, but you're like whitewashed tombs because on the inside, there's death and decay. There's pride and there's arrogance. And, and you may be doing things right on the outside, but on the inside, in your heart, where it counts, you're missing the mark. Jesus said, it's not the prideful or the perfect who are happy. They're not the ones who belong in this new kingdom. It's the poor in spirit. Now, when he says this, it doesn't mean that we have to imagine we're insignificant and without value. Because poverty in spirit is not putting ourselves down and thinking we are less than. Poor in spirit simply is this. It's understanding that no matter how hard I try, God, I can't do a thing to undo the things that I've done that have put this relational distance between me and you. Like a miner trapped underground. There's, there's nothing I can do. I can try and work really hard and I can try and be really good and I can try and do lots of good things and I can read my Bible, I can go to church, I can give and, and all of those are great and I'm not saying you shouldn't do those. Those are very important to do but we should do those out of a loving relationship with God, out of gratitude. God, I want to serve you. I want to follow you. I want to learn more about you and not God, I have to do this because I'm hoping that if I do it enough, Somehow I may gain your favor. Jesus is saying, you'll never be able to do enough. You'll never not be able to do enough things wrong. You'll never be able to do enough things right. But when you understand what it looks like, what it means to be poor in spirit, when you understand that there is every reason for God not to bless us, but because he loves us, he does, when that mindset changes, then you discover what it means to be blessed. Then you discover joy and happiness. That's what it means to follow Jesus. This picture on the screen behind me is of a guy whose name is Brennan Manning. Some of you may have heard of Brennan Manning. He was a, uh, an author, had an uh, amazing story. He's dead now, but 
And he's written some brilliant books. And uh, I remember it was about 15 years ago, he actually came and spoke here in Peoria at Riverside Community Church. He was a funny, brilliant guy, but he was also a recovering alcoholic. And he was very open about that. He was very open about his struggles and how even after finding Jesus, these were still struggles that he battled with in his life. Difficulties that he had a hard time overcoming. And once he shared this story about a time in his life where he'd been on a drinking binge for days and days. He was wandering the alleys in clothes that were filthy, sleeping on the streets of Fort Lauderdale. And one morning he woke up in the doorway of a store, having thrown up all over himself the night before. He says he remembers as he was kind of stirring and waking up, there was a mum walking by with her young daughter. And as they got close, the little, boy, little girl pointed to him. And the mum said to her girl, honey, you stay away from people like that. They are nothing but garbage. Then the mum took her daughter's hand and crossed to the other side of the street so they didn't have to go near him. Talking about this incident, Brennan Manning went on to say, you know what? That was then and this is now. Now I'm a best-selling author. I speak all over the world. But understand this. God loved me just as much that morning in Fort Lauderdale as he does today. There's nothing I can do to get God to love me more. And there's nothing I can do to get God to love me less than he does right now. And the same is true for you. He loves you just as you are and not as you should be because none of us are as we should be. We may feel like we're better than some, but none of us are as we should be, perfect in the eyes of God. And I loved that understanding. I think Brennan Manning understood there that at my worst and at my best, God still loved me the same. His love for me was unconditional. It didn't grow as I started to fix my life. He loved me then and he loves me now because he understood the joy of what it means to be poor in spirit, to realize that, God, we need you in our lives. We're so grateful for that kind of love in our lives. And as we wrap this up today, I hope that you understand that no matter what you have on your spiritual resume, both the victories and the things you're hiding. There is nothing you can do to get God to love you more and there's nothing you can do to get God to love you less. He loves you just as you are. Like I said, not as you should be. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is theirs. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much and over the coming weeks we're gonna turn our worlds upside down. For some of us, it's gonna be a challenge because um, whether we are followers of you or not, some of us are gonna be challenged by some of our thinking as we line it up against what you taught that day on that mountainside. But as we start out this series today, looking at the upside down world that you've brought us to, to discover, this kingdom that you promised us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we can understand the joy and the blessing of coming to you this morning, poor in spirit, realizing our need for you. We can choose to leave here today and as, as followers of Jesus, those of, us who, those of us here this morning who are followers of Jesus, we can choose to follow you and to, to follow your commands and to live our lives as, we, as you would have us live. 
out of a spirit of gratitude because we want to know you more. We want to understand what it means. Live our lives as a follower. Not out of a spirit of, man, I hope I do enough this week to get it right. And maybe there are some here this morning, Lord, who have yet to make that decision to follow you. And one of the obstacles that's in their way is, is they're just not sure if they're good enough. They're just not sure if they can do enough. They are the minor wondering, can I get myself out of this predicament? Lord, I pray that they would leave this morning knowing that they don't have to, that you sent the solution. You are above the surface and you love us so much that you sent your son to die for us so that we could be rescued from being trapped in sin. Lord, I pray if there are any here this morning who have yet to make that decision to follow you, that today they would do that. They would say, Jesus, I recognize there is nothing I can do to be good enough for you, and yet you still love me as I am. And because you love me so much, I wanna give my life to you. I wanna follow you. I wanna love you in return. Lord, we pray all of these things this morning in Jesus' name.